the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. This is one of these interviews that um, I'm always a little hesitant about because um, I don't <laughs> – it, it's hard for me to be in the presence of, of people who are as, um, as accomplished as, as, as who I'm in, uh, interviewing right now. And it just, it just makes me feel like I'm less of an American or less of a man. Eli Crane, it is a delight to welcome you to this show. You made some news today. By announcing um, your run for Congress in Congressional District 1 here in Arizona, you made that announcement yesterday. It was in the news today. Uh, you've been well known in this uh, country for a long time. In fact, when I told um, my uh, told the staff here that you were coming on, one of them said, why do I know that name? Why do I know? Oh, I just saw him on Shark Tank on a repeat. Eli Crane, welcome to the welcome to the Seth Liebson show. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me on, and thank you for everything. You bet. You've 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 got a you've got a heck of a of a story and a heck of a campaign going. You've got a great ad. I just want to talk to you about all of it. Tell my audience. Just give them the 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 mini autobiography. Tell them tell them how you grew up, how you came to be doing what you're doing. Tell them who you are. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Um, and thank you guys for listening to Seth. I know he's doing a lot of great things here in Arizona. So my my history in Arizona began as a baby. I was born here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, my father moved the family when I was two down to Yuma, Arizona, where I grew up. Um, he was a pharmacist down there. Um, he's a pharmacist up in the White Mountains now. Um, I came up, came back up to Tucson after graduating from Cibola High School. Came back to uh, Tucson, where I started going to the U of A. I was starting senior year when 9/11 happened. And uh, like thousands of other Americans, I decided that this country was going to need some young men and women to answer the bell and jump into the thick of the fight for our freedom and protection. So um, I, I dropped out of the dropped out of college the next week. I joined the Navy. I signed up to try to become a SEAL. I failed out of SEAL training my first time. And, and uh, thankfully, two and a half years later, after two deployments from USS Gettysburg, in Mayport, Florida, I got an opportunity to come back through SEAL training, class back up with Bud's class two five six, and then I went straight to SEAL, straight through training, straight through uh, to uh, SEAL Team three, and that started my time in the SEAL teams. I did three deployments there, all through to Iraq. Um, the most notable, probably deployment for those of your listeners who don't know a lot about the SEAL teams. Um, from 2006 to 2008, I worked directly for Chris Kyle. He was my LPO, leading petty officer. So there were 20 guys in that platoon. It was Delta Platoon, SEAL Team 3, and we deployed um, all over Iraq in that in that deployment. And then I came back, did my final deployment at SEAL Team 3. Just, just uh, uh, i got to stop you right there. You're giving me chills, but, but, but to pause it, Chris Kyle, for the audience that doesn't know, we're talking about the American sniper hero, Chris Kyle, right? This is a yes, sir. this is the man we um, we actually did a special airing of his video of his of the movie about him. You worked with him. You knew you knew Chris Kyle. 
Yes, sir. He God was my uh, he was my boss for tw- you know two years. Wow. And um, then I after yeah after that came back did one more deployment workup and deployment to Fallujah, Iraq in 2010. That was my final deployment overseas. And then I came back and uh, did a couple shore duties in the Navy, which is basically you're still a SEAL, but you're doing an instructor instructor job. And it was at that time that my wife and I, Jen, started um, our small business called Bottle Bleacher out of our one-car garage in Point Loma, San Diego. And some of you have seen it on Shark Tank. We uh, we got a, a really cool deal with Mark Cuban and Kevin O'Leary and quickly became one of the most successful Shark Tank companies of all time just because I think people loved our product. They loved the story behind it. They wanted to support American manufacturing and companies that were supporting um you know, veteran causes. The, so you employ veterans at, at, at your company. Is that, that That's half the point of it, isn't it? Yeah, we've always tried to do that. And, you know, it's like not only have we always tried to employ veterans in where we could, but we've always tried to uh, donate to veteran causes, veteran charities, and just support. For me, I'm the type of guy I, I need mission in my life. I can't. It can't just be about profit and loss and balance sheets or I start going crazy. And yeah. so we had to find a... We had to find a way to give back, and that it was really cool to be able to use our company to give back in that way. Yeah, the whole story is fantastic, and I want to get to your run for Congress here in Congressional District One in a moment. But can I take advantage of your um, of your uh, time with us and your biography to ask you a question about Fallujah? Because I, I was just talking about it the other day, and you tell me if I'm wrong or where I'm wrong because I, I I don't have your background expertise. And I certainly was never there as you have been. But I was reminding the audience about the way we fight wars these days is a little sometimes disconcerting. I remember in 04 when in Fallujah four Americans were burnt and hung from a bridge. And I said a bunch of us uh, communicated to the White House at the time that this would be the time to flatten Fallujah. If you needed a, a reason to go in, go in and do it. But it turned out we didn't, and we went back to Fallujah several times. It just seems to me we shouldn't have to take Fallujah several times, Eli. Am I wrong about that? Am I underestimating or overstating something here? No, I think that you're, I think that you're conveying the frustration that many of us on the ground had as well. Okay. I think many of us felt like we ended up becoming at times more of a world police unit than, you know, special operators. And I think a lot of times that's what happens when bureaucrats get heavily involved in what's going on overseas in the military and and not letting um, the ground commanders do what needs to be done. So you've literally helped uh, protect freedom by being a Navy SEAL and deploying five times on behalf of this country. And um, you have employed a lot of your fellow veterans and fellow Americans You've built a company with your wife, and now you're running for Congress. I love it. Tell yes, us sir. about why you decided to run for Congress. Well, Seth, I'm, I'm sure, like much of your audience, I, I just, I, I'm, I've had it up to here. I'm so frustrated by just being let down time and time and time again because we all know that the silent majority, most of us, have very similar viewpoints, and we don't feel like we're being represented. We don't feel like the country is going in the direction that most of us want it to go. And we know that this is supposed to be a government and a country that's of us, by us, and for us. And yet you wouldn't know that if you watched the nightly news, if you watched what's going on in Congress, if you watched some of the decisions that are being made. And so I had a decision to make. I, I, I could either keep complaining about it 
or I could try and do more about it. And I want to say to your audience, um, this won't be res- this won't be resolved. This won't we won't turn the ship on its axis and head- headed back towards freedom, liberty, and and prosperity by sending another guy to Congress. We won't even do it by sending getting our guy back in the White House. And I hope we get Donald Trump back in the White House because I think he's the biggest fighter this country's ever seen. Um, I want I want you guys to understand that if we the people don't take this country back from the ground level up and we don't quit being complacent and if we don't get off our butts, quit watching Netflix and get in this fight for our freedom, our prosperity, and for the legacy of getting to grow up with the American dream so that our kids and grandkids can have it, this country's done. And I hate to say that to you because I'm not the type of guy that likes to be doom and gloom, but I'm telling you right now, I've been watching trajectory. I know where this country's at. It can only handle the weight of so much corruption and so much evil before even the greatest experiment of all time buckles. I don't want to see that happen, and so I want to be a part of the army of freedom fighters that doesn't try and fight the system but becomes the system again. Uh, thank you. We're talking to Eli Crane, candidate for Congress in Congressional District 1, an eminently winnable seat for us, especially with the Republican pushes I think we're going to have. And if you want to learn more about Eli or help out his campaign, you can go to his website, EliForArizona.com. He spells his first name E-L-I, Eli for, F-O-R, Arizona. Dot com. Eli, uh, in, in that last answer, you mentioned we the people. Tell the audience what that means to you. It's something you've had tattooed on you as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, sir. We actually, that was part of our launch announcement video, me getting that tattoo. Oh, it's a fresh it's tattoo, up. is it? Yes, sir. Yes, Their sir. newest tattoo is we the people. Perfect. Yes, sir. Tell us why. And uh, yeah, no, it's because that's what this country is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about us. And when I read the Declaration of Independence, it says that we have God-given rights, unalienable rights. And the government's job is to protect our unalienable God-given rights. But you wouldn't know that by watching Washington. And I'm telling you right now, because uh, like a lot of you, I, for years I've listened to the Ben Shapiro's of the world, the Dan Bongino's, and all of those great shows because I, I – I wanted to be I wanted to be in the know and understand what was going on, but I also wanted to be able to talk to my friends that just didn't get it. And what I what I want the message is to we the people is nobody's coming to save us. It's not this the CIA is not coming to save us, NSA is not coming to save us. It's not gonna be one guy in, in, in the presidential, you know, office that says this. It's gonna take an uprising of we the people to quit being complacent and to get off our butt. And like I said, come at system. This is the only way, Eli, and I'm so glad to hear you speaking to it. This is really the only way we're going to reverse this culture in our politics. As you say, it's not going to be by winning back a majority in Congress, the Senate, or even the White House. Uh, It's going to take the conservative movement and the idea of conservatism and our Western values to become the new establishment, the new mainstay, the new culture in America. And it's going to be a very hard thing because we've lost a lot, haven't we, over the last, oh, I guess four or five decades now. I was going to say a generation, but it's really a generation and a half. I think it starts in our schools. Where do you think it starts, Eli? Where do you pin 
the beginning of our decline. I, I put it in our in, in our classrooms, in our colleges. I'm wondering where you put it. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, I'm a man of faith, and uh, I, I appreciate, respect the fact that not everybody um, feels the same way. But I, I think that we have Judeo-Christian values in this country that have done us very well. And I think as an, at an individual level, but also as a uh, national level as well, I think at any time you start to um, turn away from that foundation, basically turn away from God, you're in a lot of trouble. And I think that it's, we've seen that, we've seen that in the classroom, we've seen that in government, we've definitely seen it in Hollywood, you know, we've seen it in basically every major institution country. I want you to trust me. I want you to be able to worship how you want to worship. I want you to be able, if you don't, if you don't have any faith or any religious affiliations, I want you to have that freedom of religion to practice the way you want to. But I think a lot of it has to do with how this country started and how far in the opposite direction that we have come. Um, thank you. Uh, very. Uh, thank you, Eli. Um, let me ask you what you see today of all the debates taking place in Washington, D.C. What's the most frustrating to you? What's the one that you said all right, I can't. I, I, I've had so. I've had enough fun. I can't take it anymore. What, what What is the debate in Washington that gives you the most angst right now? Absolutely, thank you, Seth. Um, the thing that I'm the most concerned about, I think, right now, is the lack of desire the to talk about what's going on with election integrity. I see. I look at this. I don't look at this through a political lens. I look at this through a practical lens. I look at this as a doc walking into an ER and looking at what's going to kill us first or threats on a battlefield, what's going to take us out first. And I am I am very concerned that if we the people don't tighten up our elections ASAP, you're going to see what you've seen in 2020, in the beginning of 21, you're going to see that get accelerated to the point where it, this country will be unrecognizable. You, and that's uh, what frustrates me. No, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I think a lot of Americans wake up every morning hearing another story about, you know, critical race theory, even if it's not called that, some notion of uh, Marxist or socialist Marxism that's being promoted or promulgated, if not in our schools, then from a congressman who Nancy Pelosi endorsed and gave money to. Um, I, I think increasingly with issues involving uh, transgender, family formation, race, people do wake up and say, "This is not the country. Uh, this is not a country I recognize anymore." Um, I, I, I think people who understand that understand the beginning of our recovery. That having been said, let me push you on one more issue or ask you about one more issue uh, before I uh, have to let you go, Eli. And I hope this is a down payment for many more returns. Given your military experience, I wanted to ask you about our foreign and defense policy. You know, I was talking with you a little bit about, you know, I think the, the, the junk thought that suffuses our education system, the critical race theory kind of stuff we've been seeing, the, um, the, the running down of America, um, the making of patriotism a down market commodity, all of that. Um, my my my. My question to you is this. We, we thought, many of us, that this was just going to stay in the schools and we don't have to worry too terribly much about it. Turns out there was a lab leak from the ivory tower 
and it has infected this virus of progressivism has infected much of the rest of the country, including, I have to tell you with no pleasure, Eli, top echelons of our military. When I see the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying he's reading Lenin to understand why whites would – white people would want to rage against their own country, I really worry. I really worry that the Harvard Sociology Department is taking over our Department of Defense. Is that a worry you have? Absolutely it is. And this is – I I did some education on this myself, Seth, because I couldn't believe what I was seeing from academia to the other institutions and even into the military. I started doing some research on it, and one of the – one of the things that helped me understand this the most, there's a uh, there's a pastor. His name is Bodie Bauckham. That's Bodie Bauckham. He's a big black guy. He looks like he could play defensive end for the Baltimore Ravens. And this guy is a phenomenal preacher. But he gave a sermon on cultural Marxism, and that's where I learned about what's going on. He talks about how this started, you know, with uh, traditional Marxism and how that had an economic theme to it. But that didn't quite work out here in the West because they couldn't convince, you know, um, your your average, you know, everyday worker that they were super impressed when they were richer than most of the people around the world. And so what happened is they took Marxism and they, they infused a new ingredient into it. And they took out the economic part and they infused in, you know, the cultural, the racial, the ethnic part. Hey, that didn't quite work economically. We weren't able to divide and conquer that way. So let's let's try and divide these guys up by ethnicity and race. And I'll tell you what, Seth, it breaks my heart to see it, brother, because I want to get back to the days where we look to men like Martin Luther King Jr. who said, I have a dream that one day we'll all be judged on the content of our character and not the color of our skin. That's where that's the spirit. That's the direction that we need to get back to, not telling kids that they're racist because of the color of their skin or they're a victim because of the color of their skin. It's very divisive, and that type of, that's the type of evil that will tear us apart faster than anything else. We the people on his arm and heart, Martin Luther King in his head. I have a feeling I may be talking to the greatest man running for Congress in the 2022 cycle. Eli for Arizona.com, E-L-I-F-O-R, Arizona.com. Eli Crane, as I said, sir, I hope this is a down payment and this will be one of many returns as a candidate and as a congressman. Yes, sir. Thank you, Seth. God bless you guys. God bless you and Godspeed. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Boy, you give me uh, you give me five Eli Cranes, and you probably have the Archimedean lever with which you could move the world. Help Debbie and David and Andy out by putting that man in our delegation. Who am I missing? Anyone else in our delegation? If I forgot one, sorry. But I was thinking of um, of Eli's uh, story autobiography, and it put me in mind of that great essay of John Stuart Mill's, a man who has nothing which he is willing to fight for, nothing which he cares more about than he does about his personal safety, is a miserable creature who has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. Better men than me. Thank you for your exertions, all of you who have donned our uniform. We'll be right back.
Well, that's what happens when you kick the cord out of your laptop because you're in a rush. Sorry about that, guys. <laughs> We're back to normal now. Uh, Paul Mirangoff does a good explainer today on that, which I was talking about with Eli Crane about the lab leak in America, the lab leak in America that unleashed the virus of multiculturalism and political correctness and critical race theory from the ivory towers into the rest of society, including into the U.S. military. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, a retired general, held a press conference yesterday. The two managed to demonstrate one of two things. Either, they are, either they are stupid or they believe the American people is stupid. Let's start with Austin. He assured reporters that Milley, quote, doesn't have a political bone in his body, close quote. But at the same conference, Milley did not deny and could not that he compared Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler last year, which has just been revealed. That's a political view and an idiotic one. Austin also stated that he and Milley are committed to having a military that looks like America in terms of diversity from the bottom to the top. That, too, is a political view. Many Americans believe that our institutions, including the military, should be committing to promote to, should be committed to promoting its best qualified members, regardless of what they look like. Maybe even particularly in the military. But Milley spent much of the press conference yesterday trying to tap dance his way around the fact that Afghanistan appears to be falling to the Taliban which is something Joe Biden said would not happen two weeks ago when he announced the pulling out of our last troops. On the subject of Trump and the election, Milley said that the military, quote, did not and will not and should not ever get involved in domestic politics, close quote. But telling reporters that Trump, who might well run for president again in 2024, resembles Hitler, obviously constitutes injecting himself into domestic politics. Milley could not deny having made that comparison. And I certainly recall during his hearings that he said he wanted to read that he read Lenin so he could understand white rage that led to the January 6th attack. This is not a political statement. But telling uh, reporters that he didn't say what he did say with his inability to deny it and then contradicting what he did testify to before Congress is exactly the is exactly what I was talking about yesterday with regard to the how you know your winning rule when they deny and lie that they said what you accuse them of if they were proud of it they would own up to it and admit to it by the way by the way i know we don't seem to care about contempt for congress anymore unless you were inappropriately and illegally in Congress on January 6th. That seems to be the only contempt of Congress that anyone cares about. Lying to Congress is a crime, used to be prosecuted. I'd like a reporter to ask General Milley, when he said he read Lenin, what did he read of Lenin's? I'd really like a reporter to ask him that. You know why? Nobody reads Lenin. I know he was lying. And I know he's political. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960, 602-508-0960. What was I referring to when I referred to Lenin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley? Well, he told the House Armed Services Committee a week ago, I've read Mao Tse, or two weeks ago, I've read Mao Zedong, I've read Karl Marx, I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with having some situational understanding about the country which we are here to defend? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. A, you're lying. No one's read Lenin. B, what do Mao Zedong, Karl Marx, and Lenin give you that is a situational understanding of the United States of America? He didn't say a situational understanding about the country which we may have to fight or a country with whom we have antagonistic relations, he said, what is wrong with having some situational understanding about the country which we are here to defend? And his readings are Mao Zedong, Karl Marx, and Lenin. That's who he reads and wants his troops to read to better understand the country he and they are defending. God help us. As Paul Mirigan, as Paul Mirangoff put it, notice what Milley is saying. He's saying that critical race theory provides military personnel with an understanding of America. In other words, he's vouching for its validity. It's quite a political statement, even though he said he doesn't have a political bone in his body, and it's quite left wing. Of course, he's right. Reading Mao, Marx, and Lenin doesn't make one a communist, but believing that these communists provide us with some understanding of America is sympathy with communist doctrine. There's no reason to think Millie buys any particular aspect of communist doctrine, but he has effectively admitted subscribing to at least parts of it. Maybe he will, in a subsequent hearing, tell us what he learned about America from Mao Zedong and Karl Marx and Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. If Millie read the leading communists, um... It would be good for him to explain to us at this juncture what it is he learned from them and their perspective and why he thinks America is worth defending against it. Because all we got from him was how important it was to read our enemy's ideology. I don't know how many of our soldiers or how many of our military or how many of our generals read Mein Kampf to understand America. And I don't know that they had to read Mein Kampf or even that they might have to fight in World War II. I'm suspecting the vast majority did not. I'm suspecting perhaps not even Dwight Eisenhower or Harry Truman or FDR read it. Just a suspicion. If someone knows differently, I'll admit to the incorrect statement. But I think I'm right about that. Uh, let me uh, go to Connie in Phoenix real quick. Hi, Connie. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Um, I was calling about the uh, January 6th uh, Select Commission. Yes. I, I think that Liz Cheney kind of unloaded yesterday yes. on, uh, yeah, and in particular like Jim Jordan. Yep. But I think she kind of said that he shouldn't be on it. Yes, she uh, said that. Nancy both. Pelosi said it. Liz Cheney went off to uh, went went on to uh, continue to say 
that this is not something that we should be playing games with. This is deadly serious. I'll tell you what's deadly serious, Connie, and I'll let you make your point in a minute. But when I hear people say January 6th was deadly serious, I want to focus on the deadly part because there was one dead. There was one. It was an unarmed woman who was shot in the back. And I'd like to know if the January 6th commission, which seeks to give answers to the American people, will help get to the bottom of that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, that's good. Um, I was looking at who's on the commission. Uh, Benny Thompson is the chair, mm-hmm. I do believe. Yeah. From Mississippi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Benny Thompson uh, in 2005 was one of them that voted in Congress to not certify Ohio's vote. Interesting. And also Jamie Raskin yep. is on that committee. Yep. And he voted to not certify Trump. Beautiful. Or, uh, no, he didn't vote. He actually, they were trying to get a Senator Maxine Waters, um, Sheila Jackson Lee. Right. Um, some of them were leading it. And Nancy Pelosi clapped. She did. She said going in that they didn't have a hope of it, but she was sitting across from Maxine Waters and clapped to show support for Maxine sure. Waters' objection. Sure. So I, it's the question for Liz Cheney. Then are you okay with being on this committee with these people? Well, it's also a question for Nancy Pelosi in a sense yeah. too, because she said that. They stopped the Democrat. The crime was the stopping of the uh, aside from the trespass was the stopping of the democratic process of the duly constituted elected officials. And I'm sitting uh-huh. here scratching my head asking if Nancy Pelosi knows why the Texas legislature can't be in session right now. They can't be in session right now because the Democratic minority has done exactly that. They fled the state to leave the jurisdiction so that the Texas legislature couldn't constitute a quorum so that the majority vote in Texas could be honored under the Texas and United States Constitution. Who's disrupting democracy now? By the way, Kamala Harris met, the vice president met with that delegation and stood up and clapped for them. Clapped Mm -hmm. for them. Donald Trump told the rioters, cease and go home. Kamala Harris clapped for the people disrupting democracy. See, democracy being disrupted really only matters if it is stopping a Republican, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, if it's stopping a Democrat. I, I said that exactly wrong. Uh, disrupting democracy matters only when it's stopping a Democrat. There was no talk about disrupting democracy when the Wisconsin State House was taken over by the progressives to protest Scott Walker's governor's uh, governorship. There was no concern from Nancy Pelosi or her counterparts in the Democratic Party of the U.S. Senate when the Kavanaugh hearings were disrupted. Never mind, never mind when the Democratic Party activists used people who were were lying about Brett Kavanaugh, lying to Congress about Brett Kavanaugh. None of that was a real problem, and certainly one of the biggest states in the country having its legislature legislature forestalled by a group of Democrats who are preening about flying on private jets without masks. That doesn't matter to Nancy Pelosi, Kamala Harris either. And it certainly hasn't Uh, registered with Joe Biden because Joe Biden said last night on CNN 
If you're vaccinated, you won't get COVID. Six of those legislators did. Nancy Pelosi's comms director meeting with them did. A White House aide did. All vaccinated. Connie, I spoke more than you. I'll give you another chance. If uh, uh, I'll give you the last word, I should say, if you want to say something more when we come back. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Connie, thank you for your patience. I appreciate it. I'm sorry I spoke over you a little bit in the last segment. No, no problem. I was just wondering how many uh, Republicans paid, uh, sent uh, bail money to anybody from January 6th, like Kamala Harris asked people to do. Yeah, that's that's an important point, actually, um, at, at least the way I've been thinking and talking about it as a distinction between what happened on January 6th, which angered the Democrats and Republicans vis-a-vis and compared to last summer's riots, which only seemed to anger non-Democrats. Last summer's riots, $2 billion worth in damage, multiple bankruptcies, multiple putting of minority-owned businesses out of business and up and up. 30, 30, 30 deaths, 30 homicides. That's what was last summer. Compared to January 6th, January 6th is a blip on the radar screen. If it were a pie of violence, political violence in this country, uh, it would be um, probably hard to find on the chart if we're doing comparisons to last summer. But as opposed to the riots of last summer, which featured prominent Democrats genuflecting in front of, supporting the effort, defending it, even in the name of co- even in the way in the light of COVID shutdowns. Compare the number of Democrats who supported last summer's riots by calling them mostly peaceful protests to a single prominent or elected Republican who defended January sixth. You won't find one. You won't mm-hmm. find one. The people who were involved in January 6th are people nobody has really ever heard of uh, as as prominent in the conservative movement or the Republican Party. They've never spoken on behalf of either in any public forum of any uh, any note uh, of any notice. Um, they've never donated to campaigns in any amount of significance. They, they just they are not representative of the Republican Party or the conservative movement. They're just not. And that's to be as completely differentiated from and opposed to what happened last summer, which was applauded by and supported by very prominent Democrats, including the current vice president of the United States, Connie. What a really great point. Thank you. I'm Seth Leibson. Don't go away. A lot more coming up.